From the Center of Theological Inquiry in Princeton, New Jersey, this is the Fresh Thinking Podcast. I'm Josh Malden, and I'm glad you're here. Just last week, we had our 2016 Winter Symposium here at CTI, which included presentations by two visiting scientists who engaged in dialogue with the CTI fellows on the field of astrobiology. This symposium is part of a two-year inquiry on the societal implications of astrobiology, made possible by funding from the NASA Astrobiology Program and the John Templeton Foundation. Our symposium guests were Frank Rosenzweig and Michael Hecht. Rosenzweig is a professor at the University of Montana, while Michael Hecht is a professor at Princeton University. After the first day of the symposium, I had a chance to sit down with Professor Rosenzweig along with Robin Lovin, who is the Senior Research Fellow at CTI, for a conversation for the podcast. I especially enjoyed our discussion of how Rosenzweig chose to become a scientist in the first place. He mentions that he was attracted to what he saw as the childlike wonder with which scientists approach their daily activities. Rosenzweig and Lovin go on in the podcast to discuss how certain intellectual virtues are important in both the sciences and in the humanities. Things like wonder, humility, curiosity, doubt, hope, patience. Rosenzweig and Lovin talk about how these virtues enliven and support scholarship in science and in the humanities, and importantly, in the dialogue between the two and in that interdisciplinary conversation that we try to foster at CTI. I think you'll enjoy the conversation. So I'm here today with Frank Rosenzweig and Robin Lovin. Uh, professor Rosenzweig is a professor of biology at the University of Montana, and he's here this week at CTI for our winter symposium in the, our inquiry on the societal implications of astrobiology. Robin Lovin is the senior research fellow here at CTI, who's leading the current the current inquiry. Uh, just to start off, Frank, you've spent a day in dialogue with the fellows here at CTI, who work primarily in theology, biblical studies, and philosophy. So, could you say a bit after one day of what this experience has been like for you as a scientist to be in dialogue with folks in these fields? Sure. Um, <clears throat> I've always had um, uh, broad intellectual uh, interests and um, um, a background in the humanities before going into the sciences. And so uh, for me, it's been uh, very comfortable and very stimulating. And uh, it is not often, even at my home institution, that I have the opportunity to engage with people in philosophy and religious studies uh, other than in um, university service, which is not as uh, stimulating a context as here at at CTI. So um, I have found the fellows uh, uniformly to be uh, receptive to engaging in uh, the the science part of this dialogue and uh, in many uh, instances, particularly in the small group conversations, uh, they have kind of stretched my mind in terms of uh, thinking about um, uh, ethics, 
thinking uh, about certain philosophical implications of, of uh, the research that I and others do uh, at NASA. Uh, and, and so it's been very, uh, how shall I say, you know, not, not just stimulating, but uh, uh, opening. And have you taken part in interdisciplinary conversation much before? And if so, are there certain practices or virtues that you think make that, that conversation go well? Uh, well, to, to be honest, most of what I would have previously considered to be interdisciplinary was, in fact, interdisciplinary within the sciences themselves. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, perhaps that's, you know, ev evidence of my interest in engagement in that I've had collaborators who were geologists and, and mathematicians and biologists of, of, of stripes that often really just don't talk to each other at all. Uh, in the biological sciences, there's a, a, a divide that sometimes is manifest even at the department level between molecular biologists and ecologists, for example. And I've never recognized those boundaries in my work or in my you know, professional friendships. Uh, I, I, but to, to come to the point, um, as far as engaging with philosophers and uh, folks in you know, religious studies, um, uh, outside of the context of doing that in my own home, uh, with my uh, parents and my children who have wide-ranging interests, uh, this is a novel experience for me and a pleasant one. Robin Lovin, you're the senior research fellow here here at CTI, and you're leading the current inquiry on the societal implications of astrobiology. Could you say a bit about what you're hoping to see as the accomplishments of, of this two-year project? Well, I think the interdisciplinary work that you were just describing is, is important for the theologians and the philosophers and the other humanities scholars as it is within the sciences. We, uh, the, the reason why we're interested in the societal implications of astrobiology is that this search for life in the universe has so many implications for the future of our politics, of our literature, uh, of our thinking about life itself, that... Uh, it, it really pushes us to move across these disciplinary boundaries. I, I, I think the scientists have kind of led the way in that because the, they saw the broad-ranging implications of astrobiology before most of us in the humanities did. Frank, I'd like to turn and ask to talk a bit about your, your own intellectual background. Uh, what led you to, to decide to become a scientist? Um. So, so my, uh, my undergraduate work was in uh, comparative literature, and I had, uh, uh, even in pursuing that, which was itself an interdisciplinary uh, degree, um, I had taken a lot of, of, of the natural sciences, so I had sort of the equivalent of a zoology major minus uh, a few um, chemistry classes, and um, um, Really, I came to this point in my life where there was a, a, a choice between uh, pursuing, you know, a doctorate in the humanities or one in the sciences. And I pursued one in the sciences because I felt myself to be happier there. I mean, it was really choosing, choosing, uh, choosing happiness 
And, and I found that by and large, and maybe I was in the wrong you know, group in the humanities, <laughs> but, but most of the, I, I looked at the, at the graduate students um, in the sciences, and I found them to have, um, this is going to sound odd, but I found them to have, you know, uh, to a woman and man, a kind of a childlike wonder to their daily activities in the laboratory or the field. Um, and whereas my uh, colleagues, my the graduate students in the humanities, uh, seemed uh, often to be weighted down by the uh, the, the problems of the world, hmm. and uh, this doesn't mean that the, the sciences, the, the scientists, were living in blissful ignorance. It's just that their focus of study, uh, perhaps you know, took them outside themselves and focused them on nature, uh, which gave them uh, you know this other kind of demeanor. And I, I felt that sort of dichotomy within myself, and I thought, you know, how do I want to live my life? And I uh, essentially chose to live my life uh, playing in my sandbox, you know, for uh, for decades. Uh, that's that's what I chose, and, and I've I've been pretty happy with that. You mentioned wonder as a kind of virtue of the scientist, and I know yesterday in one of our conversations you talked about a kind of doubt that is sort of constitutive of being a scientist. Are there other if you could say more about those as intellectual virtues of, of science, or are there other virtues that sort of make someone a good scientist? <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> I laugh because uh, some of my uh, postdocs and, and uh, students will, uh, they, would, they would laugh at my next remark. When, when I interview a postdoc or a graduate student, you know, one of the first questions I ask is, do they play a musical instrument? Mm. Um, and I ask that for several reasons. Number one, in my own uh, undergraduate, excuse me, my own, my own graduate uh, laboratory and uh, in, uh, in, in postgraduate work, uh, I found that, that many, I would say the majority of my colleagues were also musicians, which is a, an important dimension to my life. So I asked them, you know, do they play a musical instrument? <clears throat> so, uh, and, and have a decided prejudice for those that do. The reason for that is, number one, I think that uh, uh, despite however I might romance science, a lot of it is really just <laughs> drudgery. <laughs> But you have to enjoy the drudgery. I mean, you have to, it, you know, it's just like you're, you're playing scales at some level. You know, it's not that you're rejoicing and playing, you know, chromatics, you know, uh, day in and day out. But, it, but sometimes it has to be really pleasurable or that you can let your, your mind sort of wander a little bit. So I think uh, enjoying repetitive activity, yeah, <laughs> which maybe is a kind of a psychological disease, <laughs> uh, but also uh, delayed gratification, mm-hmm. uh, uh, a delayed gratification uh, in the sense of uh, being patient about uh, little epiphanies that can, can serve as, uh, as the carrots that draw you into your inquiry. Uh, because I think musicians uh, commonly experience breakthroughs 
in terms of their virtuosity or their mastery of a particular piece. So I think, you know, the, the virtues from coming, uh, from loving music, from wanting to work in music, um, I think that they, the practical skills there uh, serve a scientist very well. But there are plenty of great scientists, you know, who, who, who couldn't, you know, make a sound on a piano or a, or a flute. So that's a disclaimer there. Yeah. Robin, you've recently been editing a book in, in which you have an introduction that talks about intellectual virtues of interdisciplinary theology. And I was thinking, could you say a bit about, does the interdisciplinary work with other fields, with science, does, has that helped you think about a new ways of thinking about intellectual virtues for your own field of theology and, and religious ethics? Oh, I think very much so. And they, there's a certain way in which these interdisciplinary virtues do cut across the fields. Uh, in this introduction, I and the colleagues who, who have written it talked about the virtues of humility and hope. And I, uh, you know, I could certainly uh, relate this to what you're saying about patience and a certain willingness just to engage in the hard work of of getting the job done. There's, there's, if the laboratory scientist especially has to dwell in the details, the the theologian has a tendency to develop a, a, a uh, comprehensive picture of the universe. In some sense, that, of course, is what, uh, what theology is about. But the trick is for, for the theologian to maintain that kind of awe and wonder in the face of this comprehensive understanding and and so humility clearly important in in the life of a, a theologian and I'd relate hope to uh, what Frank just said about patience uh, that uh, uh, we in in none of our disciplines do we arrive where we want to be quickly uh, and the, so the ability to to see that goal uh, and and move toward it uh, is is it, with the kind of patience and persistence that that's really important I think in all of our work. I think one commonality uh, that's becoming apparent to me, at least in the dialogues that we've had today and yesterday, uh, is that um, you know there's a I think um, confidence in your own ideas is important, but an openness, you know, a willingness to embrace uh, new ideas, sometimes contradictory ideas, mm -hmm. I think is really important to making progress, um, uh, you know, in, in either field. It, it seems to me that that uh, humility, a, a weird combination of confidence, yeah. you know, humility, uh, and and willingness to engage uh, and hope uh, are, are really vital ingredients in the discourse. Hmm. Another thing that I was struck by yesterday, Frank, was when you said you talked about how your lab, 
the Rosenzweig lab. It's not it's not your lab. It's a you saw, you saw it as a collection of artists actually. Mm-hmm. Do you see science as a kind of art in that sense? In some oh, sense? absolutely. I really, really, absolutely do, and that's why you know uh, I've I've never seen you know any sort of contradiction you know in, mm. in my uh, you know and and how I operate as a scientist or why I c- came to science you know mm-hmm. through you know through an interest in the humanities and the arts. Um, in fact, I would say that uh, you know very subconsciously have organize the lab kind of as an atelier. I would would also add that um, the European model is a bit more like that um, in the sense that you have a group leader and you have under that group leader the equivalent of a number of assistant professors, you know, who are sort of, uh, I think, unduly subservient to her and that's, that's the bad part of the model. But the good part of the model is that it's a it's a research group and a team, and these people increasingly uh, have a lot of independence. That that's been my model. It's not like I invented this myself. I've seen this uh, at work in Europe, so I've tried to engineer sort of the best of both worlds, that the the sort of freedom and independence that we have in the United States, but also this structure of a uh, of uh, of an artist's uh, workshop. Right.